Okay, please stand for the reading of God's word. Daniel 6, 19 through 28. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you've served continually, been able to rescue from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouth of the lions. They had not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no one was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius rode out to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issued a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. All right, you guys may be seated. I love the last line of that song that we were singing, Oh, for grace to trust him more. That's what we're here to do this morning, is we're here to trust him more. And the way we're doing this right now, in this month and next month, is we're looking at these stories from the Old Testament. And we're looking at witnesses of who God is, what he's all about, and what he's doing in our lives. And we talked last week about witness can mean two things. It can mean we witness something or someone witnesses to us. And what these Old Testament stories do is they witness to us about the God that we serve, that he is trustworthy, he is faithful, he is unchanging, he is all-powerful, he has a plan for you. He did it then and he continues to do it today, and he will do it throughout eternity, because that's who our God is. And so we're here to celebrate this morning the stories of people like Daniel, and look and see what God might have for us in their witness, in their life. Now this story is so famous, Daniel and the lion's den, right? You probably heard this at a VBS growing up, if you were doing VBS or kids' stories, they love the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And as I was mapping out this series, thinking about what are the characters of the Old Testament that really show us God's character, this is at the top of my list. But I'll admit to you guys, and this is slightly embarrassing having had a seminary degree, I I couldn't remember exactly why Daniel was in the lion's den. I remembered he was in there, and I remember that God rescued him, and I remembered the end of the story, but why was he in the lion's den? (laughs) And so I went back and started studying this passage this week and, and thinking through what do we learn, not just from the famous part of this story, God rescuing him, what do we learn from the lead up to this story? What do we learn about the guy who found himself in the lion's den? So I would like to start this like one of those movies where if we open up and the scene is Daniel and he's kicked back with his head up on a lion and it's the middle of the night and the camera comes in and he says, you're probably wondering how I got here. That's where I want to start. What kind of person finds themselves at this period of time in the lion's den and lives through it? What kind of person? What can we learn from that person? So if we open this story, 
We're celebrating the triumph that God can do the miraculous. In Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, Daniel is remembered as somebody in whom God stood up for and stopped the mouths of lions. It's amazing. We still believe in a God who stops the mouths of lions. And we believe that he can do that, but we also believe that he works in the ways that he did in Daniel before he got in the lion's den. In fact, one of the things I want you to see this morning is sometimes it's your faithfulness that will put you in the lion's den so that God can do what he can only do with somebody who comes out of the lion's den. So you open this story, and Daniel is in the lion's den, but this is actually the end of Daniel's life. In fact, he's probably 80 years old or more at this time. We don't know exactly how old Daniel is, but he is at least 80 years old at this point in the story. And in fact, the book of Daniel is split in half. The first half is narrative, and the second half is prophecy, and this is the last narrative story in Daniel. This is the last thing we find about his everyday life in Persia, in Babylon, being taken out of Israel. And his name, names are so significant in the Old Testament because parents would name a child in the hope that they would grow up into that name. And Daniel's name is a compound word like many people's names. Anytime you hear a Yah or an L at the end of the name, it means God something. And Daniel's name means God is my judge. God is my judge. We would put it, if this was the message, we would say, only God can judge me. That's what Daniel's name means, which is a very provocative name for somebody who's not living in Israel. So his name is God is my judge in the midst of a group of people who do not believe in his God. You can see why pretty quickly when he gets to Babylon, they rename him. Okay, It's not good PR if you're Babylon for having somebody in your royal court whose name is God is my judge. So they rename him. But we know that the core of who he is is a dependence on God to vindicate him. The core of who he is is that God, in the end, will have the final say. Now, the kingdom of Judah at this time, this is in the 6th century B.C., is not doing well. In fact, they haven't been doing well for a while. They are a sick empire. They have uh, actually sold themselves out to other states as a vassal. They have worshipped foreign gods. They have had prophets arise and say, if you don't repent you will go into exile. Jerusalem will be destroyed. You will go into exile. What do they do? Nothing. (laughs) They continue worshiping other gods, not following God. And finally, the Babylonians and a king named Nebuchadnezzar comes and lays siege to Jerusalem. And the opening lines of Daniel tell us that Nebuchadnezzar rolls up to Jerusalem and lays siege to the city, and he is victorious. And so the, the city of Jerusalem falls over a period of time. And Right at the beginning, the Babylonians did something that was kind of novel on the world scene. They were really, really shrewd in the way that they conquered people groups. What they did was, when they besieged the capital city, they began taking young, influential people out of the city back to Babylon. So if your parents were the equivalent of senators or governors or business leaders or civic leaders, they would take their kids and they would take them back to Babylon, and they would put them in the palace to teach them Babylonian literature and culture and put them in leadership positions and invest in them. And they did this for two reasons. Number one, if you do this successfully, if you assimilate the most powerful young people in an empire into your empire, now all of a sudden you have a huge amount of control and influence over these people. And secondly, and this is a little bit more cynical, if you do this, All the noble people are much more incentivized to do what you tell them to do because their kids are in your capital city. 
So the Babylonians are smart about this in terms of their goals. And what they do is they take all these young Israelites back to Babylon, and Daniel is one of those people. So Daniel and his three friends, Rakshak and Benny, all go back to Israel. You can tell who's seen VeggieTales in here. They all go back to Babylon, and they are of royal lineage. They're probably related to the king. They may come from a priestly class. They are influential in their area. And it says that they start to train them in the ways of Babylon. They take these young boys, they're probably anywhere from 10 to 14, and they start to shape and mold and assimilate them into their culture. Now, this plan of assimilation is really strategic, but it's not unique. Every culture wants to assimilate people into its own beliefs. Every culture wants people to believe what they believe, do what they do, follow the customs that they follow, look like they do. And so you could almost map out the history of the world as one assimilation after another. Which culture is assimilating which other culture? And in this case, the question is, will they be formed into the image of Babylon, or will they be continue to be formed in the image of God? And this is a tall question for young boys. 10, 12, 13, 14, you are highly susceptible, highly influenceable, and highly subject to whoever it is that can give you the best deal in life. But one of the things I want to point out is Daniel's whole story is a testament to staying faithful to God in a land that is not your own. So how do you live for God in a foreign land? That's Daniel's question. How he lived his entire life in a land that was not his own, and he lived for God. So I want to know, how do you do that? How do you live for God in a foreign land? Well, the first thing is you commit yourself to God's ways. You commit yourself to God's ways of doing things. And we see this right at the beginning of the book of Daniel. They bring in these kids, and they get them on this food regimen. They're going to give them the food from the king's table. And Daniel speaks up in the the court, and he says, I just want you to give us, actually, water and vegetables. Now, which, what 12-year-old says this, okay? And I'm glad this isn't a command in Scripture. This is just an example, okay? This is not a command that we have to do. This is just an example of what they did. They had some inclination and some covenant before God that they were not to eat the meats that were sacrificed to foreign gods. And that's what they were feeding him at this table. And so these young kids had a choice. Do we do things God's way or we do things Babylon's way? And they chose to do things God's way, and at the end of this trial period, they were stronger, smarter, and better looking than all the Babylonian kids. God was faithful to them. And so you see, from the very beginning, they had to decide, am I going to do things the way that I've been taught, the way that my God does things, or am I going to do things the way that God, uh, the gods of Babylon do? And it doesn't change over his whole life. Daniel outlasts several empires over the course of his life. He's first taken to Babylon. They're conquered by the Medo-Persians. Now he's in the court of the Persians. And he is given a responsibility over the entire empire. Now, the Persian Empire is the biggest empire the world has ever seen at this point. And so what they decide to do is they decide to appoint 120 governors over the provinces of their empire. And they pick three people. This is at the beginning of Daniel chapter 6. They pick three people to be over all the governors. And Daniel is the first among the three. So Daniel is kind of like a president, or he's like a lead of 120 governors over the Persian Empire. This is serious political power. And I want you guys to remember, these Bible characters are in real situations like we are. This is not a mystical fairy tale land. He was a well-known political and social leader in the palace, working with the emperor at the time, who's Darius. 
making real-life decisions. Daniel is accustomed at this point to giving orders. He's used to people doing things the way that he wants them to do things. He has a lot of people at his beck and call. He's got a lot of influence. A lot of people think that he was in power and influencing Cyrus when he sent the Jews back to Jerusalem right after this. So he's used to having things his way, but if you look at his personal life, he's used to doing things God's way. He's used to doing things God's way. And so because of that, some people begin to plot against him. So this is just an iron rule of history. You get that much power, you're going to have enemies. And he's got enemies. And his enemies decide, we've got to do something about Daniel so that we can take his spot over all of these people. Now listen to the plot that these people cook up. The high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint. This is amazing. He's 80 years old, and he doesn't have skeletons in the closet. I mean, this is an amazing guy. They say, we can't find anything for a ground for complaint, and then they say this. This is in verse 5. These men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Think about what a remarkable thing that is to say about somebody. We can't find a single thing wrong with them except their devotion, their unwavering devotion to God. If we're going to get Daniel on something, that's going to be it. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't cut corners. He doesn't lie. He doesn't abuse his power, but he sure does worship God. And that's what they decide to do. They're like, we're going to come up with a scheme that utilizes that he does things God's way, and that's how we're going to get him in trouble. So all through his story, this is, this is it. He's doing things God's way, and it actually doesn't work out that well for Daniel several times. And so I don't want you to come away with the story of the lion's den message that we sometimes take. If you just trust God enough, he will save you from your present trouble. In fact, what happens with Daniel is if you trust God enough, he will lead you into your future trouble so that he can deliver you and bring glory that he has designed for your life. So a trustworthy, faithful person is not a perfect person, but it's somebody who's living a Godward life. I would challenge you this week to just go through this chapter. And even if you write in your Bible or even if you just print it out, sometimes marking can be so helpful to see what's going on. And just underline every time you see the phrase, his God or your God. It's attached to every clause that talks about what Daniel is doing in these major points of the story. He prays to his God. He is devoted to his God. He is faithful to his God. He lifts up his voice to his God. His life is totally focused and centered on God and doing things God's way. And so the men decide, okay, we're going to use that against him. We're going to come up with a plot to trap him in his worship of his God. Now, there's another thing that you need to know about living for God in a foreign land, and that is that God, he's not just personally, his character's not just devoted to God, he is committed to God's plans. He is committed to God's plans, not his own plan. And if you want to live for God, you must commit yourself to what God has planned, or you will make no progress. So I was, I've been uh, meeting with a guy for counseling, and, and one of the things that we've been talking about is he came in about six weeks ago and was just, his life was in a very terrible spot, and one of the things that he said was, I don't believe God has a plan for me. And that's hard to rebut with evidence when one of the things that he's relaying to you is how bad everything is going. And so we talked, and one of the things that we did was we decided we we're going to do a daily prayer to hold each other accountable, and we we're going to ask God to show his plan and his way. We're going to ask him to show how much he loves us, that he has a plan for us, and then we're going to start watching and just see what happens. 
And it was amazing. We met again last week, and, and we've been meeting in the intervening times, and one of the things he said was, I've never been in a place before where I see so much of what God's doing. Now, here's what changed, what he was looking for. He wasn't looking for what God was done. He had it in his mind that God didn't have a plan for him, and so that was reinforced over and over and over again. But God does have a plan for him, and he does have a plan for you, and he is working his plan for you, but you have to commit yourself to his plans. You've got to commit yourself that I'm going to do what God does. I'm going to, if he opens a door, I'm going to walk through it. If he commands me to do something, I'm going to do it. And that's what characterized Daniel's life. He gets this huge break, right? This is what you would spend your whole life leading up to, this huge position of power. And what happens? There's a plot against him, and he has a decision to make. All you have to do is not pray for 30 days, and you can have this job of your dreams. That sounds like a pretty good deal. But for Daniel, it was an easy choice in the other direction because God's plan for him did not involve not praying. So what he does in verse 10 is right when he hears that the order has been signed, so these guys go to the emperor and they say, you know what, you're so awesome, everybody should pray to you. And the emperor's like, that's a pretty good idea. Everybody should pray to me. And they say, so why don't we send out a decree that nobody can pray to anybody else for 30 days and that will give you so much honor and glory in the empire, especially with all these new people that we've conquered. He says, that's a great idea. So they sign this into law, and then they go and watch. And what does Daniel do? Daniel's probably a part of these deliberations. And in verse 10, he goes and he says, he knew, when he knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. The plans of the empire changed. The plans of the people around him changed. The plans of his position changed. God's plan did not change. Amen. And so Daniel did not change. He kept doing what God had called him to do. Even when everything else was leveraged against him, he continued to follow God. So one of the commentators put on this, I thought this was such a great phrase, Daniel's mindset could be properly described as the reverse of paranoia. The reverse of paranoia. In a world in which there were really people conspiring against him and dangers on all sides, he nonetheless exhibited a peace that is truly remarkable. How did he do that? How, when actually the world was against him, did he continue doing what he was doing? Because he knew that God's plan had not changed and he was committed to God's plan. So he bends down on his knees, he prays, and he asked God, we don't actually get the content of this prayer, but he had to be asking God to preserve him and to be faithful and maybe to foil this plot in some way or another. Or maybe to influence the heart and the mind of the king, which is a prayer that God actually answers after he gets out of the lion's den. So, you know, Daniel learned this lesson early because previous in his life, he, he became prominent because he could interpret dreams. You see this in a couple of places in Scripture, in Joseph and in Daniel, you see somebody who rises to the top of the, the uh, basically Joseph was head of Egypt and he's head of Babylon and Persia because he can interpret dreams. And so in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and Daniel goes to his friends and he prays that God would give them an interpretation and he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The only problem is Nebuchadnezzar is the emperor of the known world at this point and he's kind of a hothead. And the interpretation of the dream is you are going to crawl on all fours and eat grass. That was the interpretation of the dream. And so Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, what does the dream mean? And that's exactly what he says. You will crawl on all fours, and you will eat grass like an animal, and you will wander for months, and then you will come back to the Lord. 
pretty risky, but it's exactly what happens. I mean, exactly what happens. Nebuchadnezzar and the commentators get all wrapped up in what kind of mental break he must have had to think that he was a cow for a while and eat grass. And in the end, the only thing that happens is God word, God's word proves true, and when Nebuchadnezzar realizes that, he turns and worships the living God. So Daniel has seen this before. It doesn't really matter what the cross pressure is. It doesn't matter what your opportunity might be. It doesn't matter what you could get yourself into if you would just compromise a little bit. It only matters that you do what God has called you to do. So he's not about to do something different with this new king. Now, one of the hardest parts of our lives, it's easy to say, just do God's plan. But one of the hard things is like, what is God's plan? What is he calling me to do? If I had the assurance that Daniel had to do exactly what I knew God was calling me to do, I would do it. But the problem is I'm really not sure what it is. And one of the things we see is there's an active part and there's a waiting part in this story. Daniel wasn't 100% sure how the story would end. I'm, I'm convinced of that by what this text says. He did not predict that the lion's den was coming and then he would be saved and then he would get out. But what he was convinced of is that he had an understanding with God to pray three times a day facing Jerusalem and to never waver. And this is such an important lesson for us. A lot of times we're waiting for the big thing and so we neglect the small things. I'm waiting for God to show me just the right career or the right person or the right opportunity. And in the meantime, I'm not doing the things that I know I have chapter and verse that he has called me to do. Surrender to him, follow him, pray to him, obey him, lead our families well, worship him together, come and invest and serve and use our gifts. Those are things that are universal for everyone. No matter what you're waiting on from God, he is calling you to do those things. And so Daniel just takes the little things. I pray three times a day, I face Jerusalem, and I'm waiting for God to show me what's next. So the active part of doing the little things and the waiting part are actually a way that we pursue what God has for us, pursuing his plans, even in a foreign land. Now, the most important thing about how to live for God in a foreign land is what Daniel does at the end of this story, which is he commits himself to prayer. He commits himself to to prayer. There are three instances of Daniel praying in, the book, in, in this book of Daniel. The first one, he's praying about the vision that he's going to interpret for Nebuchadnezzar. The second one, he's praying here uh, against this order and asking God to preserve him. And the third instance is in chapter 9, when the decree is given for people to return, Daniel prays that it would go through and the people would go back. So every big decision in his life, every pivotal moment, he surrenders himself to God in prayer. Now, I want to go back to this plan that these people have hatched. So it's not like in chapter 3. If you remember, in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are confronted with a slightly different question. And that's a wonderful story, too, but it's different. What they're commanded to do is something that actually violates God's law. So if you remember this, they are commanded to bow down to the giant bunny statue. And they say, we're not going to do that. It's a giant image, it's an idol, is what it is, what we would call it, and they are commanded to worship a God other than God, and they don't do it. They're thrown in the fiery furnace, God saves them. Daniel's, his predicament is a little bit different, and it's more subtle. He's not commanded to do something that violates God's law, he's commanded not to do something that he knows he should be doing to serve God. And this is where it gets a little bit humorous, if you think about this, all he had to do was not pray for 30 days. Not pray, not just at all, in public for 30 days. How many of us would be convicted of this? I mean, if you look at your life honestly and you say, if the only thing you had to do was not let anybody else know that you were praying for 30 days and your wildest career ambitions could come true, I mean, 
How hard would it be just to skate by and not violate that order? This is a voluntary action that you just abstain from, and you can have what you want. But Daniel couldn't do that. There's no way. He knew that his life, his power, his strength, his sustenance was tied to his prayer life with God. His time in prayer was more important than any power he could have, than any position he could have, than any favor he could have, because he got to kneel before the living God every day. Think about it. When you see it through his eyes, this comparison is almost silly. You can have the favor of whoever, or you can go before the God of the universe every day. Which do you pick? And because Daniel had committed himself to this, it was an easy choice for him. It was like the people knew, like clockwork, that they could convict him if they just waited in one of those three times. So it says he goes and he does what he typically did. He gets down on his knees. He prays. He faces Jerusalem, which is a total act of defiance, not facing Babylon, which is the capital of the known world, facing this conquered, run-down town that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed, and he prays towards Jerusalem. And the people see him. They convict him. They send him straight to the lion's den. Now, this is, an, this is actually an issue of conscience. And this is where we have to be wise as Christians that we don't impose things on ourselves or other people that God hasn't actually commanded. And really, this is the key to a lot of disappointment as Christians is when we hold God accountable for things he hasn't promised to do, then we get disappointed. What happened with Daniel is there's no passage in the Old Testament that says you must pray this way. Right? There's nothing in the Torah, there's nothing in the first five books of the Bible that say three times a day facing Jerusalem. That was a custom among many people this time, and afterwards, because of what happened like by the New Testament time, it was a command from the Pharisees because it worked for Daniel, and it could probably work for you. But at the time, it was not a command. And what we see in Daniel is it was a matter of conscience. He felt like in his life with God, God had said, do this and do it this way. And even that was something that he wasn't willing to compromise. And you know what I think? Most of the time, compromise sneaks in not through the explicit commands. It it comes in the places where you feel like God is calling you to do something, and you don't do it. Or you feel like God has called you to something for a season of your life, and you get off course. That's where compromise starts. All right. Most people don't wake up and they say, I'm just going to break one of the Ten Commandments today. That's my compromise. No, usually it's more subtle, and you kind of back into it a little bit, and then you get off track a little bit, and what Daniel knew was, even in the matter of conscience, if God is pressing something on your heart, don't violate it. That doesn't mean you got to make everybody else do it, but if God's calling you to do it, don't compromise on it. Follow what God is leading you to do. So what I don't want you to take away from this is, if you're not praying on your knees facing Jerusalem three times a day, you're out of God's will. But what I do want you to take away from this is if God has impressed it upon your heart to do something like this and the pressures of the world cause you to change, that's something that could be compromised in your life. Daniel's not willing to compromise. He knew that what you do through prayer is going to be far greater than what you do through any other form of power. So the difference between chapter 6 and chapter 3 is actually a more specific call of God on somebody's life to be close to him, to walk with him, and God is faithful to them. So let's go to the end of the story. In the end, they seal up the lion's den. This is an interesting little detail here. They, they pour the mortar on the lion's den, and they put the king's signet ring all over the mortar so that they will know if it has been broken in the night. 
And the king is really convicted. He doesn't sleep very well. Daniel sleeps like a baby. He gets all kinds of rest in the lion's den because there's an angel in there stopping the mouths of the lions. But the king is restless, and he gets up in the morning, he cries out, and he says, Daniel, and listen to how he identifies him, Daniel, servant of the living God. <laughs> Imagine somebody saying about, that, about you in your worst moment. In your worst moment, you're suffering, you are out of luck, you have been uh, hijacked by these people, and he says, servant of the living God. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And there's this pause in the story, and you're waiting. And Daniel says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king. He's blameless before the king. And I have done no, I've been done no harm. Now the king was exceedingly glad, and he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. I want to point out two things at the end of this story before we close. The first one is God brings justice in this story. This is where we end the children's story is right where I ended this. He gets out of the den. It's great. It's wonderful. Everybody lives happily ever after. But they don't. The people that conspired against Daniel are thrown into the lion's den. And some of this, I think, is just to show us in the text, they report this to show these were not fake lions, okay? And these were not full lions. These were ravenous lions. They were fully capable of eating somebody because they ate the people right afterwards. And remember with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the people that throw them in are so overwhelmed that they are taken up with the heat of the flame. And at the end of the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, this is, this is my favorite one. We do not do this story justice when we tell it. Fire comes down from heaven. It devours the sacrifice. It's like amazing power of God. Elijah's name means my God is God, and that's what the people are chanting. They're saying, my God is God. My God is God. And nobody converts. Nobody. This amazing miracle, and you don't see people turn to the Lord. What you see is Elijah hunts down the prophets of Baal and puts them to death. <laughs> You're not telling that story at VBS. We won't be doing it that way at camp out. But I want to call your attention to the fact that God is a God of justice. And you may disagree with certain ways that he does this, but you're not God. He gets to decide who is innocent, who is guilty. And the moral of that is not just we hope in God for justice in the end. We do hope in that. That's one of the things that's unique about Christianity is in the end, our God is going to make things right. We're not just going to coast into eternity and things are left undone. God is going to bring justice to everyone in the end. But here's another thing that's unique about Christianity. And it won't be us now who get to deliver that kind of justice. It's God. We reserve justice for God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't fight for certain causes. That doesn't mean we don't try to right the wrongs that we see in the world. But this kind of justice is reserved for God. And we trust in him. Even though, Paul says, we are being slaughtered like sheep led to the slaughter, God in the end will make it right. God in the end will bring justice. And so I don't want to shy away from the end of these stories because that is to sell short God's whole story. The people who have taken a stand against God, we want them to repent. That's our job. We preach the gospel. We want them to repent. And if they don't, God will bring justice in the end. It's an uncomfortable thing to say in our culture right now, but it's all through the Bible that God is a God of justice. No wrong will ever go unpunished, either paid for on the cross or paid for at the end of time by God. Now, the other thing I want you to see is what God actually does with this justice in this story. So at the end of this story, 
The king runs up, he finds that Daniel is unhurt, and then his heart is changed. His heart is changed. King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And all people should tremble before the God of Daniel because he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. I don't know about you, but I often long for people of Darius's power and ability and influence to be saved. And I do hope that God will save them. But I think it's interesting in this story how they're saved. It's not Daniel's previous influence that saves him. It's not the fact that he has seen how devout Daniel is that saves him. It's the fact that he's seen that Daniel really believes what he says he believes, even when he's in the lion's den, that changes his heart. So sometimes your best apologetic, your best way of sharing your faith with other people is to live like you really believe what you say you believe. And even in your worst moments, to serve God and show he really can sustain me. He really has forgiven me. He really does have a plan for me. He really will endure with me. Those are some of the most powerful statements you can make to the people watching your life, is they watch you really have to fall on what you say you believe, and it proves true. And his heart is changed. His heart is like, I don't have this kind of power. He's worshiped as a God at the beginning of this story, and he's worshiping God at the end of this story. And the thing that changes is Daniel has the faith to go into the pit of the lion's den and come out praising God. And that's your life. That is your life. And that is my life, is that we, through anything, through suffering, through triumph, through our skills and talents, through our weaknesses, testify that we believe in the living God. Amen. We believe in a risen Savior. We believe in forgiveness. We believe in justice. We believe that we'll spend eternity with him and that that is more that is so much more joy and so much more power than anything we could do here that we'll risk anything for it. That is our greatest witness to the world. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that in this story and in so many others, Father, you, you prove yourself true in the end. And Father, we find ourselves where Daniel and others find themselves on the front end of the story. Lord, when we're suffering or when we're walking through a difficult season, we don't see what you're going to do in the end. And so in those moments, Lord, by your Spirit, would you give us the grace to trust you? Father, would you give us your spirit that walks with us and convinces us that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, and that you might be doing something in our lives that we don't see, that we would never have guessed. But Father, maybe somebody else's heart hangs in the balance. And so Father, like this king, Darius, would you, through our sufferings and our trials and our commitment to you, would you use that to reach other people? Father, I pray that you would add to our number here in this church and to the church in the world your way. So, Father, help us now to see what you're calling us to, to have the courage to do it. Father, help us now as we celebrate communion together to pledge our allegiance to you, to give our hearts to you fully, to say you sustain us. And, Father, to preview what's coming for us, eternity face-to-face -face with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. So we're celebrating communion this morning, and communion is an opportunity for us to say, he feeds us.